So, you know, there is a certain type of maintenance technician that will just somehow inherently know that an asset is not behaving correctly. You know, there's that tribal knowledge because they've been doing it for 30 years. Something sounds wrong and they understand we need to go and do something about it, otherwise it's going to break. We're really trying to use machine learning now to capture what is in that person's head, how the knowledge they've built up over 30 years, try and produce an algorithm that represents that. Of course, we don't have 30 years to do that. So we're using data on a much larger scale, much higher volume of velocity of data to be able to build models that understand. Hi, and welcome to another episode in Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield, and today I have the pleasure of having Oliver Sturrock in the studio with me. Hi, Oliver, how are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you, Des? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for making time to join me. Now, Oliver, you're the Chief Technology Officer for uh, Fluke Digital Systems, and that sounds like an exciting role, and I'd love to get into the detail of that. Before we do that, though, I hope you don't mind, but could we maybe just get a little bit of background on you, where you're originally from, a bit of your academic background, and uh, I guess your career path, some of the highlights you can share, and uh, how you came to be at Fluke and Fluke Digital Systems in this amazing role of CTO of uh, FDS? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I'm a technology guy, so I've been a software developer my whole career. Um, so I started in the UK um, in, the, in the 80s, developing software for flight simulators, which was a, a pretty exciting place to be. Uh, and then I moved into uh, distributed control systems, so you know areas that required pretty close working with hardware, combining software and hardware to make amazing things. So that's kind of I think what kicked my career off, and and that has stayed with me my whole life. I've got a computer science degree from York University in the UK, um, and I, I've worked in a few different industries, so I haven't sort of stayed fixed on one industry, but it's always had this theme of of working closely with hardware and software. Um, so I was I was very active in the the mobile phone um, era, uh, pre iPhone, building mobile applications for for devices before people even realised you could build mobile applications. And we did that in finance, uh, in media and entertainment. So we we built a phenomenal system for Sky Broadcasting in the in the UK to allow them to show live TV on a mobile phone. So I, I've I've you know I've seen a few different industries. Um, but I've always uh, had some themes around connectivity, um, networking, transfer of data across networks and things that's sort of, sort of stuck with me. Um, filed quite a few patents on that over my time. So that, that's sort of the driver. It wasn't, I don't think, ever a conscious decision. Um, right. But, but that's been a big theme in my life. Yeah, I noticed you had uh, nine patents, no less, listed uh, just on your LinkedIn profile. And uh, uh, I mean, that's amazing. Congratulations. It's a bit of a humble brag. I, I would love to have one patent, let alone nine. Um, but looking at the the structure of your career path and so forth, it seemed to me that you've got uh, almost the uh, the perfect storm of career path that led you to this CTO role in Fluke. The role you had previously with Shad, uh, I guess, was a natural fit to come into this particular role. And from what I understand, you made a move from the UK to the US to sort of uh, to head this whole uh, space up inside Fleet Digital Systems. Is that right? I, I did. So Shant was a, was actually a startup business based in, in Germany, um, uh, which I joined in 2012. And um, Dave O'Reilly and I, Dave was the CEO of that business, and I built that and we sold that to Fluke last year in 2017. Right. So I, I, I took on this role initially from the UK, um, but then decided that I should be closer to head office and my colleagues here in uh, in Seattle. So I, I made that move in May. 
Yes, it, uh, I think we were talking earlier and you commented that uh, certainly makes life a bit simpler without uh, living one third of your life at uh, 42,000 feet. Now, you've got some amazing uh, uh, focal points as well. I mean, uh, I was looking at uh, some of the key things that you seem to touch and, and, and uh, be involved in around big data, IoT, analytics, machine learning, you know, all the usual suspects there. Chief technology, of, technology officer in a company like Fluke, massive depth and breadth as far as a role potentially can have. What does it look like from your point of view? What does a day in your life look like uh, inside such an exciting and, and, and rapidly growing business? So it is phenomenally exciting. I mean, I think the opportunity we have to be essentially building a, a, a you know, relatively sizable startup, but in, within this huge company that has such an amazing brand um, is very, very exciting. And, you know, I think my life involves pulling a lot of different pieces together. So one of the things I love about working for Fluke and, and our parent company, Fortive, shares this ethos is that we are totally customer obsessed. So understanding our customers' pain points is a big part of what we all do every day. So our job, you know, although my, ironically, although my title is a technology officer, the technology is the bit that we're almost trying to hide. You know, what we're interested in doing is figuring out how we help customers be more productive, safer, um, and, and do, you know, do their job better, quicker, and cheaper. Right. Um, so you know, that's that's where we focus. So I've got a big engineering team um, spread across the world, um, but the, you know, the, really the driving force between, behind my organisation is a team of product managers, um, and we. You talk to customers every single day, or we're talking to people who talk to customers every single day to understand how do we how do we improve their lives and and make those pain points less painful. I like that. Now, um, I'm really keen to get some insights on a couple of key things around what you're doing at the moment, particularly the 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 overarching theme of connected reliability and the whole framework that's around that. When you when you kick off a conversation with with uh, either a partner or an integrator or a client or a customer at the end of it. How, how do you start the conversation around explaining connected reliability uh, frameworks from the get-go, from like, you know, the very top end? What does it even sound like? So, I mean, connected reliability involves pulling a bunch of things together. And, you know, so I'm sure your, your listeners will know Fluke as a brand, which is predominantly about test and measurement tools. So these are things that exist on one end of that spectrum. They're about taking measurements. And Fluke is a leader in, in tools that take very, very reliable measurements. Now, our role at Fluke is to extend that beyond pure measurements into first insight. So how can we help customers understand what that data is telling them and then beyond that to measurement to, to reliability? Um, so if we then look at the other end, what is reliability? Well, ultimately, you know, a maintenance technician or a reliability engineer wants that equipment to work as reliably as possible. And if it is going to go wrong, he wants to know when it's going to go wrong so he can proactively um, get to it and fix it. Um, so, you know, ultimately the way I think about this is that this is a, is a kind of scheduling problem. Um, you know, every maintenance group's got a finite set of resources. Um, most maintenance managers will tell you that it's too small uh, a group of resources. So how do we help those people decide where those resources need to be. Um, and, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is to determine what are the most critical assets and which of those assets are, are going to cause downtime. So my job, I suppose, is to bridge the gap between the measurements and that reliable zero downtime scenario. Right. And it's an interesting challenge because, you you know, we were talking earlier about this, but, um, uh, I mean, I, I see this uh, as... 
uh, a generational challenge in many ways as well because you know you've got the the amazing as you said you know every everybody does know fluke we, we've probably got one in a drawer somewhere uh, and in fact i was talking to one of your colleagues recently and he said that his dad ran over uh, when he got the job at fluke and said hey wait i've got one of these and then pulled out the bottom drawer and there's a little yellow gadget um, and, you know, 70-odd years of amazing uh, history of, of being in that space. Um, but I, th- I think you've got this combination of uh, uh, devices that used to generate data to now you've got devices that capture the data to now the Excelix platform and ecosystem that can ingest that data and provide insights and analytics and, and so forth on it. Uh, and there's been, the, uh, I guess, a generational shift from historical analytics of, you know, what happened and why to now real-time as and what is happening to this amazing magic of predictive analytics. Um, yes. and, and I see that as an amazing shift because, you know, now we, as you said, you know, we, we can not just avoid things going bang uh, and even potentially save lives when they do go bang, but now you can bring some of that data-driven decision-making from traditional enterprise and banking and wealth management space that's leveraged that well into engineering and, and big things that hum. Is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that, that's at the very heart of, of what we're doing. Um, so, you know, if you look at the Excelix platform, it, you can split it into layers. So the first layer is about the connected piece. Um, we, we have to talk to huge number of different data sources, not just Flute tools, but other people's tools, SCADA systems, building management systems. So we're really looking to bring data in from any and every data source that exists in an industrial facility. So that's the first step. So we built out an architecture which allows us to bring that in on, on mass, um, put it into a format that we can use and store that data then the next piece is what we think of as insight. An insight could be anything from a simple alarm, so a temperature is too high, or uh, the, you know the current has dropped, or the current is, is different to, to what we typically expect. So those things can be manually set fairly easily. Um, now we're into this world where some of these conditions are much too complex for the average human being to be able to set manually. So you know there is a uh, certain type of maintenance technician that will just somehow inherently know that an asset is not behaving correctly. You know, there's that tribal knowledge because they've been doing it for 30 years. Something sounds wrong um, and they understand that we need to go and do something about it, otherwise it's going to break. Um, So, you know, we're really trying to use machine learning now to capture what is in that person's head, how the the knowledge they've built up over, over 30 years, we need to try and produce an algorithm that represents that. Of course, we don't have 30 years to do that. So we're using data on a much larger scale, much higher volume of velocity of data to be able to build models that understand, first of all, what does normal look like? Um, right. So we can, we, you know, if, we, if an analysis is running correctly, we can use machine learning to understand and build a baseline which says this is this asset is, is behaving normally. And then if, if the asset starts behaving in a way that is abnormal, we can detect that. And that's relatively straightforward. Um, the next piece is, is then, and you know, part of FDS is a maintenance management system, and we work with the giants like IBM Maximo and SAP, um, and many other um, third-party systems, to pull in maintenance history into that. So we know what has been done to an asset over the years. So we can start to pull together information, not only understand likely failure modes. So if this happens, then this is the likely failure, but also what actually was done in response to that. So we can actually represent that whole life cycle of a maintenance event from how do we detect uh, what, what what we think is going to happen and in what time period and what do we do about it. And that's true prescriptive maintenance. So right. at that point, you know, we can detect very, very complex conditions and take the guesswork out of what do we need to do in order to keep this asset running. 
Now, I like that point. Uh, it came up in something I was uh, reading the other day around just the scale and the speed. And, and I guess when we think about big data, we often talk about the Vs of velocity and so forth. Um, but we are, you know, we are at the scale now where, and I think it's probably been the case for some time, of course, but we're now just realizing that the, that the humans can't, not so much be allowed, but shouldn't be in a position where they're required to make that decision because the the the, the thinking's too big. It's too fast, you know, particularly if you're doing, you know, what people are predicting, which is billions of sensors, if not trillions. But um, uh, I did like the when I saw the the first sort of briefing on uh, the way that the entire platform worked. The thing that really jumped out at me from what you were just talking there was just that connectivity, the openness. I think there's a you know, when I think about the uh, unique proposition that that Fleet Digital Systems and the Excelix platform have. Uh, a lot of other players seem to have fairly siloed and niche vertical elements that they do the devices well, they do some software well, or whatever the case may be, or even just professional service consulting. But it seems to me, uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, that uh, uh, Fluke seem to have from woe to go, from front door to warehouse, you seem to be able to have a plain English conversation with somebody in the border about the, the approach and the strategic thinking and getting that sort of framework in place all the way through to actually putting things on devices and gadgets and widgets to collect the data and do analytics. I mean, that must be a pretty exciting position to be in, that you've got that whole full gamut from one end to the other. Um, you know, give us some insight into kind of how that compares with the rest of the market currently, I guess, uh, for, from your point of view. Yeah, I think that is unique. Um, and, you know, that gives us huge uh, ability to, to test. So, you know, again, one of the, the, the principles of Fluke is to be to be able to iterate rapidly around a solution. So we're not going to go off and spend a year producing something that may or may not fix a customer problem. If we hear something from a customer, we want to try a solution as quickly as we can and, and improve it as we go. Um, so having all all of that technology, so we, we bought a couple of years ago, we acquired a company called eMaint, which is the market-leading SaaS CMS. Um, um, and that is now connected into Fluke Connect, which is our, our connection software for the Fluke tools. And then we acquired the Shad business, which is where I came from, which was uh, an interface into industrial protocols. So, you know, there, there are a couple of things here. That, that, that gives us tremendous ability to test solutions and fine-tune solutions. But that said, you know, again, looking at this through the customer lens, they don't want to be locked into a proprietary set of tools. So, you know, we, I don't think we have that many customers that use Fluke from one end of the factory to the other end of the factory. <clears throat> Um, now, of course, we, we like customers who want to go down that road, and we, we consider that to be the best of breed experience. But nonetheless, many most of our customers will be running IBM Maximo or SAP. So it is also incredibly important for us to work with those existing tools and those existing infrastructures. So we, we probably invest uh, just as much into being excellent with with Maximo as we do with eMate, for example. And on the data capture side, we work just as much on open standard integration as we do with fleet tool integration. So it's having that agnostic ecosystem that allows a customer to plug anything into this and plug anything on the output side um, is tremendously important because, um, you know, one of the big challenges I think we're seeing with meaningful industrial IoT solutions is this very siloed, fragmented nature. Um, so, you know, you can get great sensors for this over here, you can get great tools for that over here, but these things don't talk to each other. And that's just irritating to a customer. It's it's actually slowing the adoption of condition monitoring down. It's it's slowing down the adoption of of moving that data into a true reliability solution. So so we're really open on all sides and we have APIs that we publish to, to third parties and so on. 
Actually, the, the, I was in a conversation around smart cities uh, just yesterday uh, with a council here in Australia, and that was exactly the, the comment that they started making, that they were, their single greatest frustration in the last 15 years has been the closed environments that they've had to work with. And even to the point where, uh, and I, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but here in Australia we rolled out a new uh, ticketing system uh, for buses and, and public transport. Someone forgot to tell them that they needed an open API to get data out of it. So we, we were able to get people on and off buses with electronic tickets, but we just can't tell you how many got on or off and what, whether the children are aged or, or, or whatever. Um, and so I, I guess that's, and it seems to me this is a natural evolution. So I think, you know, when we look at the past, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, when we look at the past, we had sort of, you know, the PC boom and the internet boom, and then we dealt with the Y2K thing with a gun to our head, and we had dot-com boom. Some of these felt forced. Like I sort of, I generally get the sense that the dot-com boom was pushed on us because it was an opportunity for people to make a lot of money from something. I get the sense that the the IoT and the IIoT, uh, I guess, transition and this whole digitized um, uh, approach to what has historically been things that hum and, and you hit with a hammer, it seems to have a lot more of a natural feel. It's like a nice merging of, of technology and capabilities. Cloud has become a thing that feels natural. Mobility has become a thing that's feeling natural. 5G is transitioning very seamlessly and smoothly. And this whole thing of open APIs and interconnectedness, to me, it seems a lot more natural, a lot less forced, and, and it's organic in many ways. And I think what I've seen with what you've done with Fluke and particularly the Excelix platform and integrating the likes of Emate and so forth is that it all just seems to gel together nicely. And, and when I talk to folk about it here, they get it. It just makes sense. You know, they, they've seen the, the, you know, for example, I've seen the transition Office 365 made sense. It was cloud, it was applications. There was no pain in it, really. This, to me, makes sense in your industry because all the bits connect nicely. And as you said, it, it doesn't have to be all fluke. I'm sure you'd love them to be, but it could be that they've got 20 or 30 years of history of data, of infrastructure, of sensors that they just need to merge in. Is it fair to say that this is just more of a natural sense with this when you're talking to companies? They don't seem to have that jarring experience of coming on board, sticker shock, uh, cultural change required, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think we, what's important to realize both about I- IoT, at least in the industrial sense, and and AI in a general sense, is that these are not really new things. Um, you know, customers, our customers have been doing IoT uh, for years, um, you know, 20, 30 years, because they've had distributed control systems, they've been capturing data on large scale. Um, what, what allows us to now think in bigger terms and move IoT to much more scalable systems where we've got a lot more automation and the, the, the magic of AI is, is huge processing power that wasn't available in the past. So I think, you know, a lot of our customers don't really recognize the term IoT, but they actually have been doing it for two decades already. Yeah. And the same thing same thing with machine learning. I mean, the, the AI is not a new technology. Um, what has allowed it to really um, get, gather massive momentum now is, is the processing capability and the ability we have to distribute it and to build models across vast universes of data that can model these much more complex um, sets of events. I guess uh, often I was having a conversation around this very topic with someone uh, over the weekend and, uh, you know, there are, uh, I guess, you know, for, with the greatest respect, a millennial generation individual with a great uh, degree and really great brain, but they were so excited about SpaceX and the potential of putting man on the moon. I said, well, you know, back in 1969, we already did that, right? <laughs> and so that goes to your point about, you know, people have been doing this for decades and decades and decades, running big, heavy things at home or even lots of little things. Um, but we often forget. I, I, I do love the idea that now that the scale is possible. One of the things I was 
reading the other day that seems to be the case now, and I'd love to know if you're, I'm sure you're doing this, but I see a lot of organizations that are building big, heavy equipment now publishing data sets saying this is what it looks like when it's normal, and you can ingest that data set in the model and then compare it with what you've got in the field or what you're deploying new. Uh, are you seeing partners come to you now saying, this is what our device looks like when it's normal. This is what it sounds like. This is what it hums like. This is the vibration. This is the heat. Um, can we ingest this and say this is normal and then monitor all the data and even do analytics on the data we've got to see if there's been incidents we need to go and track down and potentially do maintenance on? We are. Um, there's not necessarily as easy as it sounds um, because there are a lot of environmental factors that impact how an asset will behave when you get it in situ. So, you, you know, you can build a model around a robot or a motor or, or some asset which, of which there are hundreds of thousands, but it won't necessarily perform the same way when you connect it up to specific types of loads or specific environments or if it's been repaired and one of the parts wasn't replaced like for like and so on. There are even different sensors can have different data signatures that can throw your model out slightly. Right. So that it's probably a pretty good starting point. But, you know, we certainly feel that it's very important to have an in-field learning capability. Um, that is to say, you know, we might get you 80% of the way with an out-of-the-box model, but the bit that's going to tie it into your specific asset is that 20% learning. And that that can be done in a very short space of time. I mean, you can actually do that within a week or two. You don't need months and months worth of data. Um, you know, and, you know, going back to your previous question, you know, I, I do think this is a very natural evolution of the Fluke ecosystem. We do have millions of tools in the world um, used every day by professionals producing inordinate quantities of data. Um, so to be able to leverage that and turn that into things that take them further on that journey is, is very sensible. Um, but we think we need to be very realistic about how how much magic, you know, out-of-the-box magic is, you know, AI sometimes feels a little bit that way. And I think this idea of a universal model that's going to come in and magically understand your asset is, is one of those steps too far, at least at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I greatly believe that this is furphy of this whole, you know, because even even if you've developed the model and even if you've written the, the R or Python code and you, you apply some basic you know, algorithm to do some learning on this thing, often your own code turns into a black box and you, you end up just reacting to the decisions it makes because that's what happens when you push A and it gets B. Uh, and I think this is the concern that a lot of people have got now when they've come from a pen and, and, and clipboard sort of background, they know that when it makes a noise and they hit it with a hammer, it does this. When they put something into this little black box and we, we refer to artificial intelligence or machine learning, you know, particularly generations. I mean, we, you know, we were talking about generations. I mean, when we think now in the world we're facing here, I, I think it's fair to say that, uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that we've got baby boomers and Gen Xs and Gen Ys and we'll serve Gen Zs and there's a millennial mix in the middle. You've got like five age group generationally who are trying to deal with historically what they've done for the last 20 or 30 years of their career all the way through to, to, to new kids who are coming into the space who are social media generation and they want kind of, you know, I, I saw a really great blog come out of Fluke uh, the other day around sort of this idea of the Facebook-styled approach to, to maintenance and reliability. Yeah. That must be an interesting challenge to, to bridge as well, sort of the conversation between someone who's running around with a stubby pen and paper and says, it just sounds wrong, to someone who's like, I really don't want to look at the machine, show me the data. How do, yeah. you, how do you glue that together? That is challenging um, because, you know, we there's, we can't just turn and look at the younger generation coming into the maintenance field. I mean, they are doing that and clearly they have expectations that have been created by Facebook and their Apple devices and so on. Um, but at the same time, the average age of a maintenance technician is is over 45 and those are the primary set of users. So we, we, we need to try and support both. 
Um, you know, so just touching back on AI for a second, I mean, I spent a lot of time talking and thinking about trust. Um, anything that looks and feels like magic is difficult to trust, um, particularly for somebody who's been doing it for 20 years who thinks he knows better. Um, so, you know, we, we need to prove it. Um, and that means that we need tools that transition from what people are doing today uh, and into perhaps something that's a similar kind of workflow, but with a little bit more magical assistance um, in a way that they can decide whether they, they really trust it or not. Right. So for, for those sort of assistive technologies, I think that's really important that you can't just go, you know, don't worry about it. We're going to plug the data directly into your CMS now and everything will work. Uh, that's not the right approach. Um, the, other, the other interesting area about trying to serve both these audiences is in terms of user experience. Um, you know, there is a younger audience who wants something that looks and feels very modern consumer IT. And, um, you know, increasingly our, our software tools look like that. But there are also people, and this is, this is not just a generational thing, this is also a, a, an environmental thing. You know, you, if you're in an industrial environment, you might be wearing PPE, you're, you've got big gloves on. Um, you know, some of us for certain age have to wear glasses to read and we have to put our glasses on and off in order to use a mobile phone. And that's irritating in these kind of environments. So interestingly, I mean, serving that older audience um, is a bigger driver from t for some technologies away from mobile towards things like wearable headsets. So actually wearing a headset which pr provides you with the right information at the right time is much more convenient than trying to use a mobile phone. Right. Um, so, you know, there, there are some interesting challenges um, from generation, but it's not always the new technologies for newer guys. Um, you know, sometimes the newer technology is is better for people who've been doing it for a long time. You have to you have to mix and yeah. you know, you have to provide alternative ways. So you know, if you think if you think of our platform as as you know where the insight is being generated, we have to surface that information lots of different ways. So we might build new apps that are you know giving you. The, the, the health of an asset, for example, but we're also servicing it in applications that you can display in a headset or a mobile phone alarm, uh, you know, that, that pings when something needs to be done and so on. So I think that's the key is to provide lots of different ways and access points into that same data universe. Now, I like that. It's, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of a phrase that I use a lot around this sort of transition. That is that the challenge is to uh, not ask Mohammed to go to the mountain, but bring the mountain to Mohammed in the form that Mohammed's used to it. Um, it also reminds me of a great quote that I think always trips us up, and that is, uh, I think Arthur C. Clarke said something to the effect that a sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But unfortunately, trusting lives uh, to magic is not a good business model for many of these things, um, <clears throat> particularly when it's reactive maintenance uh, uh, versus pre uh, you know, pre preventative and, and, and predictive and so forth. Um, it seems to me that you've got some amazing, neat new toys to play with as well that I'd like to get some thoughts around. Um, and I say toys in the nicest way, but... The idea, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is big infrastructure, long-term sunk cost, sort of decade-long ROI that people have had experience with. I get the sense that what you've been able to do of late is take all of that and build on it, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly the likes of, of some of the small sensors. I think it's, it's the 3561 vibration sensors. You've now got, uh, our, uh, you know, uh, Wi-Fi-styled uh, gateways that collect stuff. I, I, I see this as a really exciting new merging space where, we don't have to go and sink millions of dollars into something to go and validate something we know. If somebody has got 30 years of experience and says, it just doesn't feel right, you can now yep. go and validate that. And I like this idea that potentially people run around with a, you know, a yellow tool set, uh, a toolbox, and go, well, let me put 10 of these sensors on and, and get you 24 hours out of data and see what we can get. That must be an exciting future prospect for people to be thinking about. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you, if you think about 
the specialism that Fluke has in how to measure things. Um, what we're doing with the sensor products is taking a lot of that very advanced technology, um, in some cases quite unique to Fluke. Um, you know, I'm thinking around things like non-contact voltage measurements, which is a, a phenomenal advance in, in the last couple of years. Um, and we're repackaging that in sensors that are designed to be fixed so we can continuously monitor equipment. So there's a role for both um, portable tools and sensors. I think the role of sensors is to be cheap and ubiquitous um, so that you can, it's cost effective to put hundreds or thousands of them in a facility. Um, and then you, you break out the portable tools, which are more advanced and capable of going deeper in order to perform that next stage inspection. So I think that's our view, you know, that, that there is a layer here where we're trying to, to focus where you need to send your maintenance resource and, and ideally give you some guidance on what you're looking for when you get there. So we can spot an early stage bearing failure um, through the application of vibration sensors or power quality measurements and temperature and so on. Um, and then maybe you take a, a more expensive thermal imaging unit to go and perform a more detailed analysis to find out exactly where in that asset you need to maintain. So I think that's a great story, um, but it is a sort of democratization, if you like. We have to make this very easy to consume and we have to make it cost effective to do this on a large scale. And that's where the benefit comes from. Now, there's another angle that I was talking to somebody about uh, recently in aviation. I won't name them, um, but an airport uh, or an airport group um, in Asia Pacific and uh, probably one of the top nine airports in the world. And uh, what was interesting is they bought the chief financial officer to the meeting. They bought the chief data officer to the meeting and also the chief marketing officer. And uh, I was like, oh, this is an interesting approach. You know, we've got an engineering team here. And, uh, but what struck me was that they were there because they realized that all the data they had was now being able to be put somewhere that we get some insights from. And they'd been through digital transformations. They'd, they'd grokked the whole big data transformation. They, they understood the concept of taking this data and integrating it all, which seems to be a big part of the whole connected reliability uh, story that you've got as far as providing integrated data across uh, fleet digital systems and devices and, and the Excelix platform. 90% of the conversation with this aviation group and the airport was not about the capturing of data and putting the sensors in place. It was actually about can we figure out how old some of these things we've got in the field are based on the data you're collecting? Uh, can we uh, plan the next five years around funding the maintenance program? Uh, how can we market the value proposition that we're now running a safer uh, uh, platform, safer airport? And it struck me that now you've got a, a combination of the engineering magic that you're performing at the, the sort of, I guess, the, the, the fundamental foundational layer of making things that, that hum smart, through to the business systems that you're integrating. So you mentioned before that, you know, in an ideal world, everyone does run the Fluke platforms, but let's say they have already got something like, you know, IBM Maximo and they've got 15 years of, of stuff out there. It was interesting to see that we had a business face and a data face and a marketing face looking at how do they leverage all the insights, all the smarts they've got to the point where they were looking at uh, their existing um, CRM that was handling sort of their relationship with vendors and partners building the airport, was giving them a view of all the value and the assets they had in the field, even down to when an aeroplane pulls up to a gate and the removable air bridge. That, I mean, that was just mind-boggling for me because I would sort of hoped we could get there, but it, I didn't think we were going to get there that fast. Is there, is there a trend now you're seeing uh, across what you're doing with Fleet Digital Systems where this is becoming a thing, where other parts of organisations are waking up to what this capability gives them? And that they can sort of, you know, start to think of, well, I've got a data lake, so how do I integrate my data with your data and so forth? I ha would like to market the value proposition of being a safer company. Th this seems another exciting avenue that's, that's just coming about as well. 
Yeah, and I have, I have. I mean, that that particular example is is a, a new and interesting one to me to discover the age of an asset, and there certainly are differences that you can perceive in in how assets are performing based on their age. Um, and it, it it is this idea that you you can apply machine learning across your machine learning, if you like. So we can build multiple models that represent multiple asset performance, and then we can use machine learning to discover what are the differences between these models. Um, and you know, you could take that to to uh, a, a long, a long way. Um, so you know, we're able to discover many things that we're probably not even thinking about today that will impact entire environments. And that is you know, precisely the point of this: is you know, when you think about big data, one of the beautiful things about big data is not the three things that you thought you wanted to know about, but all the other things that you discover on the way. Um, and you know, there are some wonderful um, analytics and machine learning platforms around that will discover the questions you should be asking. So they're not there to, to necessarily give you a straightforward answer, which is, you know, I think the, the state of the art today, but there are some companies we're talking to who have, you can throw data at the platform and it will tell you, you should be asking about this because this looks interesting to us. Um, so yes, it is getting very interesting and I'm, I'm increasingly seeing other parts of an organization get interested because they see ways they can use any kind of industrial or maintenance related information to, you know, finance is a relatively straightforward one, but I think just to overall safety, overall operational effectiveness is uh, is a natural next step. One of the comments that came out of that particular conversation, just a, a last one, was um, someone asked if they could if they could start mapping the, the safety model and look at it because someone from HR was interested in being able to show people that they were onboarding, that they were safer a company to work for. And and that got me excited as well, because if I want to go and work for an organization, I want the sense that it's safe. I don't just want them to say it. I want to be able to see some sort of evidence. One of the things I'm keen to get, uh, uh, and we were talking about this before we hit record, um, I'd love to get your thoughts and, and I guess some of the experience you've had so far in, in at least the last year or so. Um, the biggest challenge I see for organizations is, is actually making this practical. You know, it's, it's one thing to have big infrastructure or even lots of little bits IIoT, IoT, we're talking about lots of little tiny sensors around the place. The biggest challenge seems to be making it practical for organisations of all sizes, particularly when the in- industrial internet of, of, of things becomes a, a, a real thing for them. Uh, can you share any insights around the, the experience you've had so far with either existing partners or integrators or, or clients in particular without naming into them, around uh, certainly some, I guess, some advice and guidelines on how organisations should approach this? You know, what are the first steps they should take for looking at what Fluke can offer and what the Excelix platform does? What key things have you seen people put into practice around making it practical for them, integrating it seamlessly so that it's a real thing that it isn't just some sort of adjunct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and you're right. And the the answer to that question is going to differ for every organization, I suspect. But you've, we've been talking about the idea of the benefits of condition monitoring for many years. And I think every customer buys the concept that the more they understand about their assets' performance, um, the, the better the performance is going to be. Um, and, you know, whilst the idea of condition-based monitoring has been around for a long time, it hasn't been practical to do that because of the cost constraints. So, you know, having been studying and looking for various machine technologies and machine learning technologies for, you know, quite a few years, most of the stories you hear about, most of the success stories are around big, expensive assets, wind turbines, uh, you know, seed drills, things that are, are difficult to maintain, very, very expensive when they go wrong and so on. And and that's because machine learning itself has been a manual application of data science. So, you know, men in white coats arrive and they pour through your data and they'll help you build a model. So 
what is different about the Excelix approach is a democratization of all this technology. We want this to be a mass market technology. So that starts with it being very, very cheap and easy to go and deploy sensors across env environments that you're currently finding difficult to get insight into. Um, very quick, very cheap um, to uh, deploy machine learning technologies to then gather um, or create insights into that data. So you will, you'll never see a Flute data science person come to your site and start to sift through your data story and that's not our approach our, our approach is all around how can we take this domain knowledge and this data science and productize it um, so that you can deploy it and get value out of it the moment you switch it on and that's you know that that's consistent with the fluke approach to everything we do is that you get that value the, the instant the box arrives um, so I think you know that would be my one thing is we've seen many customers who get the idea but don't know what the first step is um, we're trying to make there be as many first steps as possible, you know, so we don't mind if you're an eMate customer or an IBM Maximo customer starting to pull data across into, uh, you know, could be, let's get some simple temperature or current or voltage measurements across into an IBM Maximo asset meter, um, you know, and we make that very, very easy to achieve. And then you can start to create work orders off that, or you could be an existing thermal imaging camera user and you want to start using that for condition monitoring so we've we've tried to identify all of the starting points that a customer might uh, be at and then build a journey a natural evolution from that point towards this full reliability connected reliability story there's uh, uh, one other follow-on with that if you don't mind it I get asked the question so there's some usual suspects you know as you, you talked about some of the bigger uh, uh, industry groups that were there whether it's you know and, and certainly in Australia and here we've got you know mining and so forth that, that have lots of heavy moving things. I see a, a desire for organisations that haven't necessarily seen themselves as being in those big industry groups, in those spaces, but they do have a lot of little things, you know, aged care, um, health management, hospitals, and they've got a lot of, I mean, they've probably got a CMMS of some form, some computerised maintenance management software platform that's tracked things like, you know, door, cam uh, door security control systems or cameras. They're now seeing things where they can put sensors on beds to tell when you get in and out of bed. Uh, they're mm. putting uh, audio sensors around that they can tell the difference between you running, you know, going to the bathroom and doing ones and twos versus getting a glass of water versus falling over and spilling something. Uh, there must be a bunch of new emerging spaces you're seeing now where people are looking and saying, OK, well, we've, you know, we've kind of done asset management, but this seems to be an easier way to do it. Uh, we've probably done analytics and reporting so far, but it would be great to be able to do it somewhere else because we're not really, that's not our core function as a business. We're a hospital, whatever. Um, work order management, that could be made more seamless as well as part of this whole, you know, I guess, platform. Um, we now get this connected reliability framework. And in many ways, it's kind of like, I remember when years ago, you used to have a mail server to get an email account. Nowadays, if you're just an average person, you go and sign up with some webmail platform and you get all the magic, including anti-spam, antivirus and so forth. To me, this kind of seems like, New markets and new emerging organizations, whether they're old or new companies, can turn around and say, you know, there's all these benefits that we haven't been able to get to before. This is almost kind of like webmail for connected reliability in many ways, that they can just sign up, plug in, ingest some data and start thinking about things they have dreamt of doing for a while but haven't previously had access to a tool set for. Yeah, I think that's a perfect analogy. I mean, you're right. It, you know, a lot of this stuff has been very difficult to access and required a, a major investments in things like data science or data gathering. Um, so that, that, that's really what I'm getting at when I use the term democratization. It's, it's this is available to everyone, and you don't need a multi-million-dollar budget in order to be able to achieve it. Um, and you can, you don't have to buy the whole thing at once. Either you can buy it piecemeal um, in order to achieve specific ambitions, but it will grow with you. 
Um, so, you know, that's been a very important premise um, at the heart of the design of Excelix is that ability to grow as the customer needs grow. The uh, You mentioned a phrase before, and I think it was, uh, I, I had a conversation with uh, your associate Dave uh, uh, yesterday around this, and he mentioned the same uh, term, and I think he's called it the uh, voice of the customer. And, uh, and, and I think what I've heard from what you're saying today is you're effectively are meeting customers where they are today. You're not asking customers to come and meet you where you are. You're meeting them where they are and, and at whatever maturity point in the cur- uh, maturity point in the maturity curve they are or where they are in the journey. And I think that's, that's going to be a great sense of relief to organizations, particularly when they see that there's no massive sticker cost. Um, now, I know we're coming up to uh, 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 a hard stop at some point, but um, I'd love before we wrap up, because uh, I've really appreciated getting to know you and, and the insights you've shared around what uh, Fleet Digital Systems are doing and your role as CTO. Um, before we wrap up, I'd love to hand you a virtual crystal ball, if you don't mind, and uh, get you to uh, share some insights that you personally sort of see coming over in the next three to five years over the horizon. Uh, where do we see this going? I mean, you know, you, you've got you've literally got your finger in the pulse. You're probably one of the best positioned uh, roles in the world uh, and individually your background. You've got a unique view of where this is going. I mean, are there any thoughts you can share if you were to gaze into this virtual crystal ball and say, well, this is where I think it's going over the next three to five years? What's your general sense of the future? Yeah, and that's a, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting view in the crystal ball. Um, you know, needless to say, there's a few of the things that I see that I'm going to keep in my back pocket, but we're working <laughs> on. But we've, we've, you know, some of, the, some of the things that we currently might look at and think are a little bit crazy, um, I think, tend to be those things that will come much faster than we think. So we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this scheduling issue, for example. So some of the scheduling problem of, of maintenance is how do you get the right people in the right place at the right time? The other part is how do you get parts in the right place at the right time? So we've actually started thinking about, well, can we hook this these data models up to drones, you know, Amazon style that will real-time order parts and have them delivered to the locations where you need them? Um, to make sure that you you have zero zero downtime, um, so you've got everything you need brought together at one time. Um, you know, I I think once we get the trust of the users and we can start to automate some of this stuff, um, we can take huge amounts of pain uh, in facilities. Uh, just completely take that planning process away. Um, you know, I, I think looking at, at a, a little bit more core. What we really want to do is to be able to apply this technology to to everything within any industrial facility. I mean, that's a pretty um, huge ambition. Um, and you know, it's, it, we don't claim today to be able to uh, provide analytics that will help you with every kind of asset, but eventually we will get to that point, <clears throat> um, and with any combination of tools. So you know, you as a user be able to choose how exactly you prefer to measure um, y- these facilities, whatever makes sense for your environment. We think about this concept of robustness of a model. So the more types of measurement you bring in, um, the more robust the model, because we have ways of validating our our insight. Um, And I I think to take that into single box solutions. So again, you know, rather than say today it feels a bit clunky, you've got to put a vibration sensor and you've got a thermal imager or a temperature measurement on to this single asset. Well, we'll just we'll create a box that's a magic motor box. So every motor, you put a flute motor analyzer on it, and it will understand and tell you exactly what you need in order to keep that motor running. Um, you know, the flute motto is keep, to keep your world up and running. Um, so, you know, everything we really do aligns to that. And, you know, as, as we've said, we are super laser focused on the needs of the customer. So, you know, we're probably not ever going to do drones and all those wonderful things. 
um, because we have this this laser focus on our direct customer needs. But I think there are all sorts of things. That, you know, we're we're very very excited about some of the partnerships we can create. So we we think about marketplaces, for example, where we can um, deploy other people's analytics and machine learning technologies and and other related products and help. You know, maybe other organisations uh, to to be a part of that ecosystem. Not every organisation will can afford to create an entire ecosystem of their own, but um, nor can we afford to build every type of analytics and every type of data monitor that's ever going to be needed. So I think there's a role for us to play in bringing that together. And again, if we stay focused on the needs of the customer, that is the right approach is to is to pull those solutions together. No, I like that. That's uh, that's the ultimate wrap-up, and I appreciate that. There were four key points that I remember uh, I wrote down uh, when I was sort of doing some homework on this that really jumped out at me that you've just touched on nicely, and that was that you know, you've got the familiar devices that people know. Uh, it's generating accurate data. Um, you're now providing sort of flexible software and an ecosystem around that, and uh, you've sort of managed to, to tick that magic box of making it uh, easy to do and cost-effective. And I, I, I think there's a very brave future ahead of us, and, and I... I I love the idea that wherever I'm going to go, whether it's an aeroplane or a car or some other piece of infrastructure or even the hydro station that's creating power for my house, it's getting safer and safer. It's getting easier and easier for people to make it safe and, and re- make it reliable and maintain it. Um, and uh, I think you know my, my two teenage kids are, are going to grow into a much safer and better world because of all the work that people like yourself are doing. And I thank you for all of that. Um, so thank you so much for making time to catch up with me, uh, uh, Oliver. It's been absolutely great to get to know you and, and to learn more about your role uh, as CTO uh, inside uh, Fluke Digital Systems and, and certainly the insights you've shared around what your vision and, and I guess future uh, drive is around the uh, reliability framework challenge. It's been great to chat with you. Thank you, Taz. It was great to talk to you. Cheers. Now, folks, we're going to wrap up there. You've just heard some amazing insights from uh, uh, Oliver uh, Sturrock, uh, Chief Technology Officer for Fluke Digital Systems. If you'd like more information, jump on fluke.com. In particular, under fluke, F-L-U-K-E.com, under the products section, there's a really great library of material around the topic of connected reliability in the framework. Uh, to learn more about the Excelix ecosystem and platform, have a look at Excelix, A-C-C-E-L-I-X.com. Uh, scroll down the page a little bit. There's an amazing diagram of how the entire ecosystem fits together and all the relevant constituent parts that all glue together through uh, accessible open APIs. Uh, Oliver, thank you so much. Have a great day. Really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the show again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Dad.